Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies podcast series. I am your host, Amanda Jean Swain, at the University of California, Irvine. Today, we'll be talking with Melissa Chalkers about her book, The Socialist Way of Life in Siberia, Transformation in Buryatia, published by Central European University Press. Welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, Melissa. Hi, thank you. So this is actually a book that adds the Eurasian in Russian and Eurasian studies. Uh, And so I'm very excited to talk to you about this book, um, about your research in Siberia and the Buryat people in the Soviet Union. And as a more detailed introduction, or, or as an introduction, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in studying Siberia. Um, Wow, thanks. Well, again, thank you for having me on the show today. Um, I would say that I probably, I always tell this story, but I I grew up in Colorado, and um, so I was aware, I think, of, and I spent most of my life in the West, so I was, of the United States, so I was aware of Indigenous people. I went to school with some Indigenous people, Native Americans, um, and I was aware of their history and their experience in a sort of, I guess, United States context. And so when I, as an undergraduate, I spent a year living abroad in Vladivostok, and I took Trans-Siberian Railroad across Siberia. I spent time um, in a couple different Siberian cities. And so I had become then, of course, aware of who were the indigenous Siberians um, and began to think about their experience. Uh, and especially in a more in a, in a socialist setting, um, what happened to them and what was what is their um, development under the Soviet Union? So, and then when I went to graduate school at Indiana University, um, they have a Mongolian studies program there, so I was able to study the Mongolian language, um, and the Buryats are Mongols. Uh, I spent a summer in Mongolia in Ulaanbaatar studying Mongolian and. And then I did a pre-dissertation research grant to Buryatia, uh, and I was really struck by, by this was kind of around 2000, 2001, um, that I had done the two, um, the two, two summers, one summer in Ulaanbaatar, one summer in Buryatia, um, but I was very struck by, by the differences. So in Mongolia, after the collapse of communism, um, many Mongols, uh, decided to become herders again, and they went. There was this kind of movement back to the land where you know you, you build a yurt and you start herding animals again, and you kind of go back to the the Mongol roots of the past. Um, and in Buryatia, that was not the case at all. Buryatia just seemed to be a very urban um, and um, Sovietized, if you will, modernized, um, even Russified kind of place. Um, where, and so anyway, it was very striking to me. So I began to think about what some of the differences were between Mongolia, um, the, the Hulk Mongols of Mongolia and the Borat Mongols of Russia and their different experiences. And then I started sort of down the path of looking at, um, different, uh, ways of understanding modernization in the 20th century in Borat. So that's how I, I guess I, I, that's the path that led me to this, this book. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting and interesting that you did your um, study abroad in Vladivostok. So it's a um, you, you started um, in that part um, of the Russian imperial Soviet territories rather than kind of moving um, that direction. Uh, so before we get to the content of your book, tell us a little bit about your experience doing research in Siberia. And did you face any particular challenges 
and what did you find most enjoyable about living in Puryatia? Oh, these are good questions. Um, <clears throat> so I think, you know, I mean, first of all, Siberia, again, I think having grown up in the Rocky Mountains, that, you know, it's also very striking nature with beautiful mountains and lakes and rivers. Um, and so I, I was, I enjoyed that aspect of it a great deal. Um, I would say that, that the research part was, was challenging, especially initially, because at first I had thought, well, I'm going to study, I wanted to study because I think, again, I was so struck by the fact that in Mongolia, there were still so many people who were practicing nomadism, um, that yet, yeah, and that was not at all the case, of course, in Buryatia, there are no nomads, um, at least not Buryat nomads. So so I thought, well, you know, I'm, I want to study the end of nomadism. And I went to the archives with that intention. Um, and I was even initially going to study sort of the, the late um, Tsarist imperial period of where the, under the Tsarist administration where they had enacted policies to try to end nomadism um, and then compare that with the 1930s and Stalin's policies to end nomadism. Um, but as soon as I got to the archives, uh, pretty much the 1930s were absolutely closed. So this was about 2000, again, 2000, 2001, 2002. Um, and I think really it was very striking because under Yeltsin, the archives had been really quite open and um, issues of, of the destruction of Buddhism, um, of the purges of the Buryat intellectuals, of collectivization that had been much more open. And people were even allowed to go to the archives and see their personal files or their, the personal files of their relatives. Um, but under Putin, that completely came to an end. And it wasn't just because, at first I thought, well, maybe I'm a foreigner, so they're not letting me see any of these um, archives about collectivization. Uh, but then um, I met other graduate students from Russia, Russian graduate students, Boryak graduate students, who uh, had the same experience. So it was just clear that the archives were really coming to a close um, under under Putin in the early 2000s. So then I thought to myself, well, okay, if I can't, do the 30s, um, then, you know, what am, I, what am I going to do? So, again, I think I was struck by my surroundings, that how um, Briadia just seemed to be such a, uh, I don't, I, you know, such a much more modern place in a sense. People, the Briadians really spoke Russian. Um, they were high, they seemed to be very highly educated and professional. Um, they occupied, you know, a wide variety of professions. There was, again, no movement in Boryadia to kind of go back to the land and find one's, you know, old rural Mongol roots. Uh, and so then I thought, well, well, how did that happen? Um, and then that led me into looking at things in the post-World um, War II period, which was much more open, those archives. I mean, as long as you don't want to look at KGB stuff, you're, you're pretty much fine. So that, that's kind of, I guess, that would be my, my, my larger description of doing research in Siberia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's it's always interesting how the archives drive our work um, by what we can find and what we can't find and um, what we can get into and what we can't get into. So that's it's an interesting uh, trajectory, I think, um, uh, based on the archives and also based on your personal experience of seeing um, seeing that society and, and wondering uh, how they got to the point um, that they were at. And um, so you've mentioned that the Buryat people are uh, a Mongol people, that they were formerly nomadic, uh, that they were part of the uh, Russian Empire and, uh, and then incorporated into the Soviet Union. Um, is there anything else that we should know about the Buryat people and their history before we jump into uh, the book? Hmm. Um, <clears throat> that's a good, you know, I think, uh, I think, 
I think I guess maybe just that part of the world in a sense that you have this vast amount of space in the middle of Eurasia um, <clears throat> that's been occupied by all sorts of peoples. And so there are Mongol peoples who have had empires there. There are Uyghur peoples who've had empires there. Of course, Han Chinese have attempted to have empires there. The Russians have attempted to have empires there. Um, and so <clears throat> various Turkish peoples have had attempted. Um, so I think it's it's an interesting place in the sense that it's also this very contested territory. Um, and I think the people who live there have this real um, sort of understand, or they have a sort of sense in their identity of, of being in a place that's, 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 um, that's very fluid in a sense of people moving in and out over the ages, as well as kind of being in the middle of Eurasia. So feeling a little bit of both East and West. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of people moving in and out, I think that really is the um, point that launches uh, your book and, and the arguments that you make about modernization in um, Buryatia. And that uh, Stalin's industrialization campaigns led to an influx of ethnic Russians into Buryatia. And they and so ethnic Russians were holding um, the positions in in industry as workers, as managers, as engineers. Uh, and there was also in migration of Buryats from other regions into this um, uh, Buryat region. So how did these um, demographic changes uh, change the shape and also the political changes in describing what was the uh, Buryat region or, or defining the Buryat region? So can you talk about um, that that political structure and the changing um, economic and demographic issues that um, kind of launch the story that you tell. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one of the things that's really interesting about Siberia is that, or one of the things that sort of <clears throat> strikes not people who are not from Russia about Siberia, or maybe even people who are from Russia about Siberia, is that Siberia is this land to throw prisoners and exiles in. And so most people often think, oh, well, if there's ethnic Russians there, if there's European people there, then they're there because they came, because they were forced to go there for um, the labor camps. And indeed, there were labor camps in Buryatia. But the majority of the people, like you're, you know, you're just describing, came because there were jobs. Um, and there were, and, it, and the wages in Siberia were usually higher. So if you were a worker from Ukraine or a worker from Russia, um, you could go to Siberia and make better wages. Um, of course, this had been happening. So like the demographic shift in terms of Buryatia had started to change really at the um, very end of the czarist period where um, the czarist administration had started to offer incentives for, for European peasants to move to Siberia. And so it, the sort of struggle over land is really what began first, especially because the Buryats weren't living in cities and, and the initial settlers were largely settling in the countryside. They came for land. Um, and it's a difficult situation if you have settled farmers who set up fences around their lands um, to keep their cattle within those fences or to grow crops within those fences. Um, it's really different than, say, a nomadic population that, that moves its herds across land throughout the season. So they're pastoral nomads, which means they move in kind of circular motions. They usually go to the same pastures every year, but it disrupts the usage of land. So the Buryats had already been kind of protesting that. Um, and then when you get into the Soviet period, which is in Stalinization, which is all the emphasis on industrialization and building factories, um, then the invitation comes to invite all these 
um, mostly Russian, but a lot of Ukrainians and, and other Europeans as well to come and, um, and work in the factories. Uh, and so it, it tips the scales really quickly. I mean, if you had been of the generation, the sort of, you know, early 20th century generation, you would have seen the change. You would have seen it. You would have been so rapid to have experienced this massive shift of a land that was once quite, um, you know, spacious and with very few people in it to suddenly a land that has lots of, of Russians and other European peoples. Um, in terms of the political side of it, I think in the 1920s, it was really important for the Bolsheviks um, under Kornizatsia, this indigenization policy, that, that, that indigenous leaders should become, um, indigenous people should become the leaders of their regions. And so there was an effort really made to promote Boryats as the head of the republic, Boryats into important positions of power. And there was also this hope that they could get, they would, you know, sort of create Boryat workers as well. Um, but then I think with Stalin's decision to rapidly industrialize the country, the priority was placed on um, immediately building factories in Siberia in the 1930s. And so there was no time really to try to educate the indigenous population or turn the indigenous population from rural nomadic herders into suddenly, um, you know, skilled industrial workers. And so they, you know, from sort of a, a practical perspective, the need was to bring workers into um, into Siberia to, to run the factories. So they became kind of industrial elites, which to be a worker and to work in industry was always, you know, an elevated position in a sense in the Soviet Union that, that, that emphasized a worker state. Um, but again, the politics still remained largely in the hands or, or pretty much in the hands of ethnic Boyats until really the, the late 1930s and the purges, um, in which case most of those Boyats were killed. And then we do, and then you do see a switch over to uh, ethnic Russians. And again, those are largely, you know, communist cadres that are brought in even from places like Moscow or, or the West to come in and rule over Boyatia. So there's this, there is an ethnic you know, there's an ethnic shift that takes place from really the 20s to the 30s. Mm-hmm. But when uh, in looking at the po- post-war uh, Buryatia, which is the focus of your book, the, there's um, you argue that the Buryats were proportionally overrepresented in cultural and intellectual positions. So they only compromised um, about 20, 25 percent of the population, but they had a much greater influence in the Republic than their numbers would indicate. So how did this uh, happen? How did this, the, this transformation with the, um, the cultural and intellectual spheres being dominated by um, ethnic Buryats? Yeah, absolutely. So, so, um, so yeah, like absolutely. It has to do with migration and then it has to do with changing political policies. So Boryats came increasingly from the rural areas into into Ulan Ude essentially um, to work in the growing institutions there um, and in, in growing increasingly to gain an education um, and work in administrative and government positions. Um, at the same time, although, yes, all these Russians are coming in, what's interesting about them is a lot of them continue to stay in industry and they continue to sort of dominate industry. And they live even in, um, most of them live in, in neighborhoods that are surrounded by other Russians and other Russian workers. So it's, it's a funny sort of like they create almost their own separate communities in a way. Um, but as far as the politics concerned, as soon as Stalin's 
purges were over, really even into, I mean, in, in really pretty much after the war, um, those policies were relaxed and then, of course, Stalin died. Um, and then Buryat, ethnic Buryats were able to once again get into positions of leadership in a much larger number. And in fact, what we see um, is that they come to dominate political positions and they come, even though their representation in the Republic is only 25 percent, um, they become to dominate political positions well over 50 percent. Um, and in some some professions, things like media, we see, you know, 70 percent of media employees, things like editors and journalists and writers um, are, are ethnic Buryats. So part of it is that, you know, I think what's interesting is that, and, and, we, and you see this in other regions of the Soviet Union too, where these ethnic Russians are encouraged to move into places as workers. Um, they often sort of stay in those positions. So you have several generations of people who continue to, to dominate industry and they don't really move into the other professions. Whereas the Buryats come as they increasingly become urbanized and they move to cities for, um, professional advancement or, um, or better money or whatever it might be, or educational opportunities, um, then they're the ones that begin to fill the jobs that are more in cultural institutions and educational institutions, media institutions, and political institutions. On the flip side, and something that really surprised me, is that even though you have ethnic Buryats as the predominant, even 70%, you said, in media, and also um, the cultural and intellectual um, positions to control the educational system, the Buryat language, use of Buryat language declined. Can you explain that? Yeah, that's a really, that's a really um, tough one because in a, in a sense, so to become, to fit into the institutions, if it's going to be a political or even a cultural institution, um, one has to speak Russian. Um, in in the Russian Republic and the Soviet Union, all institutions of higher education, all universities were taught in Russian. So to get into a university, if you were, you, you had, even Russians, of course, had to take Russian, um, Russian tests, right? So just like we take a test, you know, we take the SATs or something to go to college, and there's an English component to that. They would take their equivalent of the SAT, but there would be a Russian component to that. Um, and so for Boryats, they had to study Russian really well and able to go on to a university that would then give them a higher position um, later in life. So there was this real push to, to study Russian. And even coming from Boryat parents, when there were some so, sort of under Khrushchev, um, some of his education policies allowed for parents to, in certain cases, choose between um, a national language school, like a Buryat language school, or say a Russian language school, parents began to increasingly, what we see in the 60s and 70s, is start to choose those Russian language schools. So eventually, um, the Buryats who controlled Buryatia um, made the decision to cancel Buryat language education, which is kind of striking, really. I mean, they made, you know, it was, it was a large percentage of Buryats that made that choice happen. Um, so on the one hand, you're seeing this, this decline of the Buryat language, but it's brought about often really by Boryats themselves. Even though the language was, in a sense, abandoned, um, the Boryat people didn't necessarily abandon kind of all aspects of Boryat culture. So how, how did Boryat culture itself um, continue to be part of um, the social and cultural uh, world, and um, even if they weren't actually learning the, the language? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, um, you know, when you think of sort of markers of, of traditional economy or what marks one's identity, um, for Soviet authorities, language really had been a, a, a major marker of identity. It's a way that they drew lines in the sand when they were drawing up borders in the 1920s and 1930s. They used language as a, as a form of identity. Um, but at the same time, it's sort of interesting because increasingly Russian becomes, the Russian is funded dramatically, especially really when we get into the Brezhnev era, um, where there's just more money for Russian language publishing, more money for Russian language education, um, and there becomes this push to really make Russian uh, the lingua franca of the Soviet Union. And, I mean, it always, it always sort of had been, but to really, really push that. Um, and so I think that, that, um, that you know, that, that, that language then increases language, it becomes a complicated marker of identity. Like if you, do you have to speak Boryat to be Boryat becomes a real question. I think the other thing that, that's questionable for the Boryats is that the Boryats themselves, um, there are distinctive clans uh, and in a nomadic civilization, you would have clans sort of spread out. And of course your language would slightly differ between clans. You'd have different traditions and different um different clothing, you know, different clothing markers that would mark your clan. Um, but as they become urbanized, those clans really begin to mix people, the Borats among themselves intermarry. And so we see sort of the, dis- the disappearance of those clan distinctions as well. So you're losing the clans, you're losing the language. What does it then mean to be a Boryat? Um, and I think one thing that's really distinctive, of course, is race. And the Soviets really never liked to talk about race. It's just was something they practically tried to ignore at all at all possible accounts. Um, but they are Asian peoples. They are a very distinctive peoples, and there's really no way to get around that. They couldn't be, say, Ukrainians. Ukrainians could pass for Russians. It would be hard to notice the difference. Or, you know, if you're a European, a white person, you generally might be able to pass for lots of things. But if you're Asian, you're Asian. Um, and so we see in like the 60s and 70s, a lot of these, the development of um, Boryat, of urban gangs, and they tend to be rather ethnic. And the Boryats themselves would take, some of their gangs would take on names like Asian, um, we're the Asians, you know, yeah. um, or they would pick ancient clans like the Bargus, who are a clan that's, um, that fought with, with Genghis Khan. Uh, so picking these sort of ancient traditions, finding sort of new ways. So here's this urban gang, a modern phenomenon, right? Something out of like West Side Story. Uh, but they're picking, you know, distinctive markers to help them kind of retain a different kind of identity. I think in another sense, of course, you have these cultural institutions that preserve um, Boryat uh, traditions in a variety of ways. So it might be through Boryat traditional dance. It might be through Boryat uh, theater. Um, and there was, of course, uh, dance ensembles, there was theater, there was uh, opera that you would take a sort of Western style opera, but then the theme of the opera would be Boryat folklore, um, Boryat traditional music or, um, or, you know, novels with Boryat traditional stories weaved into a sort of more modern story. Um, so there were ways to preserve it or maybe museums, right? So there were lots of museums to um, preserve certain aspects of Boryat culture. So those become these kind of official cultural institutions also uh, that allow for the preservation of some kind of Boryat traditions and culture and identity. And you talk about um, the Buryat epic poem, Gazer, is that how it's pronounced? Gazer. Gazer. And uh, I forgot to ask you that before we started recording. Um, (laughs) So the Buryat epic poem, Gazer. So tell us about that, because it seems to have had kind of various lives in Soviet Buryatia. 
Yeah, that's, I think, a really, Cassandra is a really good way to kind of tell the Soviet story of the Boyaks because um, it really follows kind of Soviet nationalities policies, but then it also follows some sort of, you know, local Boyat story as well. Um, but Kisser is a, is an epic poem that's, um, it's traditionally been um, told by Tibetans and, and shared by Tibetans and Mongols alike, I guess you could say. Um, the epic itself is a story of um, a man named Kisser, who was once a god, but then he came down to earth to save his people. Um, and he does this by fighting monsters and protecting the lands around Lake Baikal, which are, of course, the traditional Boryat lands. So it becomes also really a Boryat story, something that's for the Boryats. Um, in the early Soviet period, uh, really in the 1920s and 1930s, folklore was really respected. And so again, looking at Soviet, um, officially approved Soviet markers of national identity, folklore was one of those. Um, and so there was this, there was money and, and institutional support to collect folklore, to publish it, to translate it. Um, and so for the Boyats, Kisera became a real focus. Then um, under uh, sort of the late Soviet, late Stalinist, sorry, cultural policies of Stalinism, which was more um, kind of in the, towards the end of World War II and then into the post-World War II years, last years of Stalin's life, uh, there was a, sort of a turn away from folklore because it was seen as bourgeois nationalists. So this kind of 1940s movement um, was anti-nationalism, uh, and, and the idea, and it was anti, um, the idea was to not do anything that would um, create national distinctiveness, instead to downplay that. And so um, Gasser is then, um, is then invited to be a discussion point among the elites of Boyadia. Now, at that time, of course, many of the, the, the many of the Boyadia elites had been purged already under Stalin. So you have either new elites or you have those who have somehow survived the purges. Um, and then you have some ethnic Russian uh, elites that have been brought in from outside to rule the Republic. And they're the ones that are having this discussion. Um, and really the discussion is what to do with Gesser. Should we denounce Gesser? Should we get rid of Gesser? Um, what do we do? And in the, in the end, the conclusion is, yes, we have to denounce it. We have to get rid of Gesser. Um, and Gesser, in many ways, at this point, then, represents, you know, this kind of traditional Mongol past. So we need to say to the country that, no, we don't need to support our folklore because that's something of the traditional ancient past. Um, after Stalin dies, uh, at that point, it, this movement kind of comes to an end and, you know, folklore is okay again. Um, Gesser is allowed to be studied, but at the same time, the Boyats themselves have begun to write, um, write new literature. Uh, they started to write novels and short stories and large collections of Boyat written um, literature has been published and produced, trans some of it translated into Russian. Um, and so there isn't, so there's almost like a new Boyat culture that has been produced so Gasser loses its sort of uh, such in such a strong importance as a national marker of identity when there's new markers of identity, such as this new Boreal literature that's coming out in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Um, so it sort of in the end becomes marginalized just uh, just because of that. Then in the in the 1990s, uh, there's sort of a restart late 1980s and early 1990s, kind of with the new with the late Soviet Buryat National Movement and the post-Soviet Buryat National Movement, there is a return to Kisser. The Kisser, again, um, is a, 
you know, he's a, he's a strong warrior who was fighting um, monsters to defend his homeland around Lake Baikal. And so the Boreads pick up on that again, and then we start to see the Gusera image um, reemerge. Um, I want to kind of switch topics, uh, but still obviously thinking about the impact of modernization on the Buryat people. How were women's uh, social roles changed by this process of modernization? And how were women participating in um, uh, this post-war modernization? Yeah, um, that's a really good question for me because I was really um, surprised at the statistical evidence that I found in Buryatia in terms of women. Um, by the 1980s, so if the Buryats are, you know, say by the late Soviet period, the third most highly educated um, ethnic group in the Soviet Union proportionally, um, among that, among the Buryats themselves, women are much more highly educated than men. So this really struck me, you know, what happened? How did that happen? Why? Um, if you go back to, say, um, traditional uh, educational roots for the Buryats, it had to do largely through Buddhism um, and Buddhist monasteries, which were, there were a significant number of Buddhist monasteries where uh, Buryats were educated in, in the pre-revolutionary period, but they were for men. Um, the men were the lamas. Um, the men got to go to these educational institutions. And then you see, even in the 20s and 30s, very few women, Buryat women can read or write. So what's really striking is it's a very post-World War II phenomenon that suddenly um, women in incredibly large numbers um, move to cities, uh, gain higher degrees of education, um, and professional jobs. Uh, and, and, you know, you read these sort of stories even about uh, the countryside. A lot of the men are still working in sort of countryside, you know, on collective farms or rural jobs or, or uh or, you know, choosing different paths. But for some reason, we really see this in terms of women. I think one of the things for me, I mean, there's several things. I mean, I think, first of all, the Soviet Union did have an affirmative action program for women. Um, they didn't always play out the way that the propaganda claimed it did, but certainly it existed. So there were programs to promote women. There were programs to support women. Um, there was a great deal of propaganda um, in all forms of media to support women. And there were women's congresses and women's groups and um, various things that supported women. I think on the other side of it, I think that women traditionally um, in Boyat society, as well as you say Russian society, um, you know, shared the double burden of having to do all of the housework and all of the cooking and the cleaning and the raising of the children um, and having a job because everyone in the Soviet Union had to have a job. Um, outside of the home. So I think if you think about living in the countryside and trying to do laundry and raise children and cooking and cleaning without indoor plumbing, um, an urban setting looks a lot more attractive. So I think from a woman's perspective, I just you know, can only imagine that, um, that they would want to move to cities where there were greater modern conveniences. And you mentioned already that um, in kind of the late 80s, there was the Buryat National Movement. And can you talk more about how, and obviously you just mentioned that women really benefited from modernization and, and urbanization and the education that they received. How did Buryats in general think about the Soviet system um, in this post-war period? And how did they respond to Gorbachev's policy of Glasnost? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I think, um, I think a lot of Boryats succeeded in the Soviet system. 
um, they succeeded in gaining better positions for them themselves in life. And of course, you know, the thirties were horrendous. Um, and even world war two, um, a large percentage of boyettes lost their lives in the war. So it's really the, it's really the fifties, sixties, seventies into the eighties that, that life becomes more stable. Life becomes more predictable. Um, life for the average boyat through the Soviet system becomes better. It becomes more comfortable um, through sort of modern conveniences, through educational opportunities, through new professional opportunities. It becomes maybe even more interesting in a way, as opposed to sort of rural life can kind of be tedious and lonely, perhaps. And, you know, urban life is can be more exciting, perhaps. Um, I don't want to necessarily say that that's true, but uh, but I think that those at least at least those are these opportunities that are available. Um, so when Gorbachev comes about, there's certainly um, there's certainly things that the boyats feel in terms of loss that they would like to have revived. Um, absolutely, I think people were interested in having um, a religious revival. There were a lot of people who felt. Uh, that that should be something. Certainly now one could speak more openly and freely under the Gorbachev period with Glasnost. So people began to talk about the loss of the Boryat language and um, and things like religion and other markers of tradition that had not been um, celebrated or allowed to have existed officially. Um, and so I think there's, you know, there's an openness to it. But at the same time, the Boryats were not at all separatists. There was no, you know, they were no Chechnya. There was no um, movement to break away from the Soviet Union. There was no um, even real consideration that that was possible. The Borat National Movement itself really though, begins with intellectuals. And these are mostly professors. Um, they're academics. They're people who are conducting scholarly research. Um, and they're the ones that really sort of start the national movement. Some of those people called for more radical um, change, uh, although it was again not separatist, so they were looking for things like uniting all of the Boryat lands of um, eastern Siberia into a larger republic, um, or they were looking. I mean, one of the more controversial things was to um, demilitarize the border. So there's a, a there's a very small space between Lake Baikal uh, and the border of Mongolia and Russia, as well as along kind of you get closer to China. So there's a lot of Soviet troops down there, and a lot of Borats felt that that was, and, so, and that also kind of militarized regions that were no one was allowed to go to. So there were calls for ending some of that, um, and in that that vein, also to create stronger ties between the Borats of Russia and then the Mongols of, of the independent country of Mongolia. Um, but in the end, I think you know what resonated most with with these really modern Borats were some of the cultural changes, things like uh, the revival of Buddhism, even the revival of language, as hard as that was, and, and even today is not incredibly successful in many ways. Um, you know, it, it certainly resonated with people. Um, some of the political changes people just felt were maybe um, unattainable. So what can you tell, tell us about Buryatia today? What's the political, social, economic situation of this region today? It's interesting because I think a lot of Buryats actually support Putin or have supported Putin in the past. Um, at the same time, though, Putin is um, he. So at the fall of the Soviet Union, when Russia became an independent country, when it became the Russian Federation, there were 89, um, 89 units within Russia, just like there are 50 states in the United States. Um, 
and some of these were ethnically territorial units. Uh, Putin then decided to start to destroy many of these units or merge them into neighboring units. Um, and then he created, I think it was seven federal districts, sort of larger districts that ran over um, all of these other ones. Uh, and then he gave power really more to those federal districts. So what the Buryats have seen in the post-Soviet period is, is, the, is greater loss of political control. They've seen two of their autonomous regions folded into larger just territorial units. Um, they've seen these federal districts gain much greater control um, over the republic than, than they would like. Um, they used to have elections for the president of the republic. Um, Putin took those elections away, and instead now he appoints um, the presidents. So they've seen a real loss of political control, and I think that that's really frustrating for them. Um, on the other hand, again, things that are, are cultural are okay. So there's been this massive religious revival in Buryatia. I mean, it's it's really astounding. There have been new Buddhist temples built all over the place. Lots and lots of people are um, have decided to become lamas or study religion or practice religion. Um, so there's a great deal of religious freedom, um, and that has added to their identity. So a lot of uh, anthropologists who study this topic in particular have begun to argue that um, Buryat identity is now really a Buddhist identity. It's very tied to Buddhism, um, and to be Buryat is to be Buddhist. Um, and so that's really a post-Soviet phenomenon. Uh, but again, I think there's it's a, it's a mixed situation. The economy is really pretty terrible there. Uh, I think um, there's not a lot of industry. Uh, the industry that had been there was kind of older Soviet factories. Some of those have been able to survive and some have not. Um, there's a lot of shuttle trading, which is um, where... People from Siberia go, like literally just individuals, take the train down to China um, and or Mongolia and buy really cheap goods and then bring them home and sell them. So even say like a, a professor who makes very little money, maybe will spend their summers doing shuttle trading to help support um, their income. So it's a it's a it's a it's a mixed. There's a lot of you know mixed pros. It's a, it's difficult, I guess. Life life is still. Life can be complicated. Yeah. What about their relationship between the Buryat people who are a Mongolian people and Mongolia? Is there any kind of cultural exchange or any kind of relationship? You noted that they've gone in really different directions in terms of the Buryat people and this um, embracing modernization and the and the Mongols in Mongolia kind of having a back to um, a traditional way of life. What kind of relationship do they have now? Yeah, that's, I mean, on a, I mean certainly it's a better relationship, I would say, in the sense that the borders um, are crossable. So in Soviet times, uh, it was really difficult to cross those borders. Um, and now the borders are pretty open and, and people go back and forth pretty often. Um, I think, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a touchy situation, I think, because, um, the Mongols of Mongolia, they're, they're largely the Hulk Mongols. Um, and the Hulk Mongols have been the Mongols to win out in the 20th century. They won the nationalist game. They got to have their own independent nation state. They have a seat at the United Nations. They have recognition by all major countries in the world. Um, they are a state. And all these other Mongols that got left in Russia or China or even there's a couple in Kazakhstan, right, um, they 
they didn't win in that kind of nation state game. And so there's always a little bit of um, tension in a sense over this, because I think some of the Mongols, you know, dream of a kind of pan Mongol identity or pan Mongolism. Um, but for the reality of the state of Mongolia today, they have to be very careful uh, in terms of, you know, they can't just simply say we represent all the Mongols of, 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 inner Asia, because that will certainly set off the Chinese and that would frustrate the Russians. And so it creates this very sticky situation. I think on a cultural level, um, there's a great deal of cultural exchange, um, especially in terms of religion. So uh, many Buryats today go to Mongolia to study Buddhism and they go to Tibet also, or they'll go to India, actually, really more India, I'm sorry to say, so India, the Tibetan um, community in India, um, where the Dalai Lama is. Uh, and so there's, there's a lot more cultural exchange through a, um, a religious meaning. Um, I remember, you know, I've known Buryats who have gone to study acupuncture, for example, in Mongolia and studied Tibetan medicine in Mongolia. So there's certainly um, a cultural relationship, but, but, um, but a political one is a lot harder. Well, I really enjoyed reading this book. I learned a lot about Siberia and imperial, Russian imperial and Soviet policies in Siberia and the Buryat people. Um, and I, I really appreciate that you uh, wrote this book so that those of us who aren't familiar with uh, these people in inner Asia and in the um, Soviet Union had the chance to learn more about them. So, um, but now that you've finished this book project, what are you working on now? Um, yeah, that's always the big question, what to do next. Um, I, so I'm working on another book project. It's uh, it's a history of Buddhism in the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union. So this is going to look, um, I'm, pretty, I'm excited about this, but uh, it's just getting started. So I want to look at not just the indigenous people that practice Buddhism, so the Buryats, um, but there's also the Kalmyks, which are another Mongolian people in Russia, and as well as the Tuvans who are um, a Turkish people who practice Buddhism in Russia. So looking at indigenous people who practice Russian, but also looking at European fascination with Buddhism. So looking at um, Russian Orientalism, um, looking at, say, for example, um, uh, Tibetan medicine was sort of popular in the 19th century among certain um, ethnic Russian elites. Um, Nicholas II, the last Tsar of Russia, kept a Buddhist Tibetan um, medical practitioner at his court. Um, and so looking at kind of the way Europeans are fascinated with Buddhism um, and then taking it into the Soviet period uh, to look at sort of the struggle of Buddhism within Bolshevism, um, then, of course, the destruction of Buddhism. And Buddhism was was destroyed more thoroughly than, than Russian Orthodoxy by far. All of the Buddhist temples in Buryatia were destroyed in the 1930s. But then in the post post-war era, there's this attempt by the Soviet Union to kind of use Buddhism for propaganda purposes. So they allow for the creation of a new Buddhist temple. Um, and so there are indigenous sort of Buddhists who are practicing this, but then also, again, you get this European fascination. Um, and we have people coming from Lithuania, from Estonia, from Russia, from Ukraine, who come to Siberia to study and practice Buddhism. Um, and at points, that's okay, and at other points, um, that's not. So, for example, in 1972, a bunch of those people were arrested and thrown into labor camps. Um, so, it, But for them, so for them, it becomes also practicing Buddhism, a kind of active dissidence. So I'm going to look at, look at Buddhism in that, in that regard. So a sort of longer survey history 
um, that explores Buddhism from multiple angles and also from multiple different ethnic groups. That is an exciting project, and I hope that in a few years, uh, we'll have the chance to talk to you about that book as well. But in the meantime, thank you again, Melissa, for uh, talking to us about your book. And um, thank you also to our listeners. And we look forward to future podcasts on new books in Russian and Eurasian studies. Thank you.